Hello, I'm Jesse Walls from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church. We're a church seeking to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus. Thank you to Life FM for continuing to host us. Today, as we look to God's Word, our reading is Psalm 97, so you can begin looking that up now. This sermon was recorded live at Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church, and the preacher is Daniel Jansen from the Christian Union in Bendigo. So let's read Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice, because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Lord Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we can gather here today. Um, We can read your word. We pray that as we read your word, uh, that your spirit will be at work within us. It will be more like Jesus. And we just thank you so much um, for your word that is able to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you can keep Psalm 97 open and um, also bookmark John chapter 1, we'll go back to it um, in a little bit. I wonder how you might imagine seeing the king. So if you can imagine for a little bit, if Charles, if King Charles arrived in Eaglehawk today, what would be your response? You might be excited at seeing a king, maybe indifferent, You might have some negative emotions. I'm not quite sure. But I can tell you that his appearance would be markedly different than if I walked down the main street of Eagle Hawk. If he was here, there would be crowds of people around him trying to have their chance to meet him. He would be wearing some fine clothes and there would be people around him to protect him it would communicate that this man was powerful and might need to be acknowledged in some way, whether with excitement or whether with any other emotion. Well, in Psalm 97, we see not just a king appear, but the king of the whole world. We see God's appearance. And God appears in this awesome spectacle. It is far grander than our king, walking down the street. And God's appearance commands a greater response from us, more than just some emotions like excitement. The response to God's appearance is whether we rebel or whether we follow him, whether we are his people. 
For our passage today, there are going to be four points. Firstly, the king's righteousness and justice, varied responses to the king, those who love the king, and the appearance of God. So firstly, as you can see in Psalm 97, in the first six verses, the psalmist tells us that God is the king over all the earth, and we can actually rejoice in his reign because of God's righteousness and justice. In verses uh, 2 to 5, the psalmist paints a picture of God appearing in what is called a theophany, which is an appearance of God. So in the Bible, we have many examples of a theophany, but Psalm 97 uses similar language to God's appearance on Mount Sinai. So in the book of Exodus, after God saves the Israelites from Egypt, he leads them to Mount Sinai, and he appears to them with smoke, with lightning, the mountain trembles. The the site is spectacular as God meets his people. Well, the appearance of God in in, in, in Psalm 97 seems to capture the awesome appearance of God to show that God is incomparable to anything or anyone else. It shows us three things about God being king over all the earth. Firstly, we see in verse 2 that God is surrounded by clouds. So even in God's appearance, the people looking onward can't actually really see him. We only see the smoke and clouds. That tells us that God is far greater and different than us. So in Exodus, we see God appear shrouded by smoke and clouds God actually gives the reason to Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus. So Moses asks to see God's glory. God allows him to see his glory, but not his face, only his back as he walks away. Why? Well, he actually gives a reason in Exodus 33, verse 20. He says, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. God is different. His holiness, who he is, His goodness, his righteousness means that even if we were to see him, it would mean that we won't live. He's different to anything or any other leader or anything else we find comfort in or anything we follow. His very nature is different to us. And this is actually good news. God being, in a sense, unknowable is good because he is not like the human rulers. That actually brings us to the next thing we learn about God the ruler. Still in verse 2, it reads, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The clouds and darkness might surround him and cover him, but what we are sure of, what is solid, is that God rules with righteousness and justice. We may rejoice and approach him because of who he is. God's characteristics of righteousness and justice also tell us how different God is to, all, to us, that all his divine, divine kingly actions are actually morally right. God is righteous because he acts in the right way. As the king, he shows his right actions with how he deals with evil and sin and how he loves his people. We only need to look at our leaders and rulers in history to know that humans don't always do the right thing or judge rightly. They might try, but ultimately they fail. 
They may morally fail or not properly properly represent their people. But people, leaders, are often wrong in their judgments, aren't they? In the media, it is not uncommon to hear of people who have been wrongfully convicted and finally released from prison. It seems to happen all the time. Actually, one study in 2017 estimated that up to 7% of prisoners may be wrongfully convicted. Obviously, we can't know exactly, and these statistics, they're doubted. But what we do know is that humans are not righteous and do not rule according to justice. It is not the unshakable, rock-solid foundation of their leadership. But righteousness and justice is the rock-solid foundation of God's leadership and rule. And this actually impacts how he acts towards evil and sin. We read this in verses 3 to 5. It says, Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The image of God judging from the throne is frightening, right? But what we have to note first is God's judgment is not unpredictable or malicious. He is not a dictator, but he reigns and rules according to his righteousness and justice. God's perfect moral character and his perfect judgment, these are the foundation of his throne. God shows his power in how he judges sin and evil in its completeness. He doesn't just judge in a small part of the world, but he judges everywhere. He is the king of the whole world, so he judges all wrongdoing according to his righteousness. He also shows that he has power and control over his creation. He's able to make fire consume his enemies and light up the whole world with lightning and melt the mountains like wax. God is able to rule over the whole earth. He is capable. So again, God is different to all other rulers and all other things we might find comfort and joy in. You see, normal storms aren't like God. Worldly kings and leaders aren't like God. You and I are not like God. God is God. And God is a far more powerful ruler than anything or anyone. He is sovereign. And this gives the listeners of the psalm cause to rejoice. Through the harshness of life and struggles to follow God, they know that God rules in righteousness and justice. As his righteous judgment goes out from him, as it burns and melts mountains and lights up the sky, it is not unpredictable or malicious, but just and right. The powerful scene of God's appearance is cause for rejoicing to those who trust in God because they trust that throughout life there is something to trust in. Uh, in, the, in the 17th century, there was a close confident, confidant of Oliver Cromwell, if you know your English history, named Bulstrode Whitlock. So just after the English Civil War, Bulstrode was travelling to Sweden to be an envoy and he was so worried about England's political state that he was unable to sleep. So the whole country was in an upheaval, Parliament was a mess, and he was going to Sweden to discuss an alliance. He probably felt like he was carrying a great weight. 
Then one of his servants noticed his struggle and asked him these questions. He said, Sir, may I ask you a question? Of course, said Whitlock. Pray, sir, do you think God governed the world very well before you came into it? He asked. Certainly. And do you think he will govern it quite as well when you are gone out of it? He continued. Undoubtedly. Then pray, sir, excuse me. But do you not think that you may trust him to govern it quite as well while you are living? Whitlock had no answer to this question, but he rolled over quietly in his bed and was soon asleep. How comforting it is to know that God is in control. He is the king over all the earth. And we can rest assured that God governs well. He governs righteously and justly. Like Whitlock, we can sleep well knowing that God reigns. But God's appearance also calls us to respond. Seeing God as the rightful king dispensing righteous judgment against sin, evil and sin means that there has to be a response. And there are two responses to seeing God that we see from this passage. The first is in verse 7, all worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. The first group of responders are people who follow and worship things other than God. These people worship other gods in the form of idols or images. They look to these images of a powerful force for security and help. And the psalmist can see that this is futile to boast in idols or other gods. They can't do what the living God who reigns over all the world can do. The living God has shown his power and might in all of creation over the supposed gods. God has demonstrated that those who worship images are really worshippers of nothing. These gods are nothing, they have no power. Now most of us don't have physical idols or gods like the people of Israel uh, would have known or in other parts of the world today. But we do put our hope in our desires. So if we look at our homes, our cars, what we hope for in life, we can usually find our idols and the things we put our trust and hope in. We usually find those things in what we desire. Our hearts latch on and desire things that we think are good for us, that we can boast in and trust in, that we think will bring us security or power, that might help us or make us feel good or give us comfort. We don't have physical idols in our, heart, in our houses, but we have idols of the heart. One of my desires that I often would like is a new electric guitar. I have an acoustic guitar, but would love an electric guitar. Actually, I think I might play better. It might actually be better light. People might think I'm a better guitar player if I have a good electric guitar, like a Les Paul or a PRS, something cool. So I put my hope that what is important in my life is that guitar. It's a silly example because often we have desires that we place in priority of relationship and especially over God that's much greater and larger than me desiring a new guitar. Well, our idols are actually put to shame. Those two are worthless compared to the God, the ruler of the whole earth, who reigns completely and judges in righteousness against sin and evil. God has shown that he is greater than the things we desire. 
So if we follow after and put our hope in things other than God, then the appearance of God causes all we hold on to to be put to shame. It just doesn't stack up next to God. We should instead be like the second group of people. In verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. By Zion and the daughters of Judah, the psalmist is referring to Jerusalem and those who follow God in the region of Judah. Though These are those who trust and follow the king. Their response is one of joy. God has gone out and judged in his righteousness and this delights the people of God. They don't place their trust in idols or other desires, but they put their hope in God because they know God. We can also put our hope in God by beholding God's appearance in these verses. We can also have joy and turn away from putting our trust in other things and turn towards the king of the whole earth. We can actually... um, be enamoured and be captured by God's glory and who he is. My son is two years old and he has a very short attention span. Uh, We see this when we're going for a walk. You're seeing that everything seems to grab his attention. Whether it's a leaf, an ant or a bird, he seems to go from one thing to another. It's a great joy to see him take in creation and enjoy it. But then as we're walking... He might see a digger or some roadworks happening. And there he stops. All of his attention is drawn to these big machines as they work. If he wanted to, he would stay there for hours watching the digger move earth or the road being laid. He is so enamoured by these great big things. You see, many things can draw our attention. But when we encounter God, everything stops. Everything is irrelevant compared to God. He is so much greater. For those that follow the king, they rejoice because of God and their hearts behold the wonder and joy of their king. But not only is there there a response of emotion by God's people, but there is actually an action. By seeing God's appearance, his people are called to action, to do something. They call to do something but in doing something, they also promise to be, to be safe and to also be changed. So in verse 10, the psalmist instructs, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. What happens to God's people is their desires become like God's desires. They're actually to hate evil. The things that are actively against good, not just one evil, but all evil. Their energy and desire is to be poured into hating evil. In other words, as they desire God, as they respond to God's appearance, as they behold his glory and who he is, they hate that which stands against him the most, evil. You see, evil is against God's righteous character, against his goodness, and God hates it. He is against it, and as the king, he is going to expel it, to drive it out and destroy it. Like a gardener pulling out and killing weeds and thorns, so God is ridding his world of evil. And he wishes his people to join in this. But the motivation of God's people to hate evil is not one out of fear, but it's out of joy and love. They rejoice in witnessing God's justice and 
and so are eager to join in becoming like God. Then as God's people hate evil and desire their king, God preserves the lives of their saints. He actually does something for them. God will preserve their lives. He will keep them safe. Those who are God's people have no real need to fear because God, whose righteousness and power can be seen over all the earth and has shown his power over the idols of others, is preserving the lives of those who love him. There is actually no need to fear. The psalmist actually expands on this thought in verse 11. He says, Light is sown for the righteous. By light, the psalmist is probably referring to God's presence and his righteousness. The darkness, evil, will always be present and seek to smother God's people. But God has sown seeds of light that will germinate and grow for the righteous. That though the darkness is against God's people, the king is shining his righteousness and presence in their lives, and it grows and grows. We can have comfort and hope that there are many things that might seem to be against us. God's people are never promised a life, whereas darkness surrounds us, we will all be safe. He never promised that there will be no hardship or struggle. It's a present reality. But how comforting that God's light will bear fruit in his people. That in God's people there is fruit and growth. That in their life, though there are tough times, though God's people fight the darkness and fight evil, there is hope that the light, God's presence, will grow and flourish. That we change you to know God more and to be righteous like our God is. But we're going to take a step back now. Because God has appeared in a much fuller and greater way. We read this passage and we marvel and we rejoice at God and who he is. We are confident that this is the king who reigns over all the earth. God is good, but he is also just and righteous. As we read this passage, our response is to be like our king, to live perfect and righteous lives. We wish to hate evil and to desire God. But I don't know about you, but I fail daily at this. I place my ultimate desire and trust not in God, but in other things, in my job, in what others think of me. We think negatively of others. We judge others who are not like us or who do something different to us. We think we're morally superior to other people. I remember hearing this story of this married couple where the wife gets a speeding ticket. Um, The husband, he feels morally superior to his wife. How good he is that he never gets a speeding ticket, but his wife does. He declares that he is, in a way, better at driving, and he gloats that week. But as he gloated that week, he got two speeding tickets. He wasn't better than her. And we often have this thinking, this thought about other people, that we think we are better than them. Actually, we're not. Actually, we are those who go and have gone against the king. We were his adversaries. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, We were his enemies. We fail, and we have failed at being like our king. But there's good news. Because God has appeared in a fuller and greater way. 
Our second reading today was John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Here we see God appearing not behind a cloud. He He doesn't melt mountains. There is no lightning. But this is what happens in verse 14 of John chapter 1. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, it was established that the word was God. Well, in verse 14, God became flesh. He became human, us. But actually, he did not put on humanity like some new clothes, but as fully man, as well as being fully God. This is great news. And John actually goes on from verse uh, goes on in verses 16 to 18. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God's appearance has a name, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, both fully God and fully man. Jesus is the one who has appeared to us doing two things. This is what this passage says. First is that by looking at Jesus, we may be able to see God. This is a big thing. Remember in our Psalm 97 passage, God was shrouded. We can't truly know him because we were separated from him. Even Moses couldn't see him, but in Jesus we can see God. We can't go through the clouds, but God has come to us. So when you read the Gospels and you meet Jesus, you're actually seeing God. You're meeting God. The second thing is that Jesus' appearance is marked by grace and truth. Before Jesus, to live a righteous life meant to work and live righteously. We see in verse 17 that the law which is given to Moses shows what it means to live as God's people. But as we have already said, it is impossible to live in such a way. We are all God's enemies. But Jesus' appearance is marked by grace and truth. Grace is this word we often use in church. And what it means is something so great and marvellous. What it means is unmerited favour. It is undeserved. With Jesus comes unmerited favour. With Jesus comes unmerited pardon of our sins. We who were against God, who did not deserve this love, do not deserve being blessed by God in this way, have been pardoned. The debt that we were meant to pay has been paid, not according to what we have done, but according to God's grace in Jesus. And it is not without God's righteousness and justice um, not being met. All of our sins, all of our rebellion has been paid in Jesus. As we read of God's wrath towards his adversaries in our psalm, we know that it has not been paid towards us, but on himself. This appearance of God in John is fuller because we have seen God and we've experienced from God his grace and truth. We can now draw near to God because of Jesus. 
We are no longer considered enemies of God, but actually we are his people. Through Jesus, God is our king. Doesn't that make you want to rejoice because of what the king has done for us? He has shown that he is greater than sin, than death, and all our little idols. God has appeared in Jesus. And we can trust in this appearance of God because we read in John that in him, that's Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As Jesus is not overcome by darkness, God's people were not overcome by the darkness surrounding them because God will sustain his people. He has his people and will change them to be more like him. God's people are becoming like Jesus. And as they become like Jesus, there is a time when God's people will ultimately worship their king in person. They will be with him. Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 to 5 says this. It's right at the end of the Bible and it's this great image that we have to look forward to. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So it seems like the only real response to God's appearance is to rejoice. Let all the coastlands, the whole world, know of our king. Rejoice that we are his people that we are his people because Jesus has come and paid the price of our sins. Rejoice that you are being changed to be more like your saviour, Jesus. Rejoice that God is making all things new. Rejoice in the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you. Rejoice that you have appeared um, and your appearance um, is so much fuller, so much grander than we can ever imagine. That you appeared in Jesus, Lord. And through Jesus we have a forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus we may be your um, sons and daughters, Lord. And we thank you that you are making us more like Jesus. That we may be righteous like our King is righteous. We pray that you'll be helping us. You'll be helping us as the church to do this, to help encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm Jesse Walls from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church, and I pray you've been blessed as you've spent this time in God's Word. Next week, we'd love to have you join us in person for our service at 10am. I hope to see you there. And as always, if you'd like to make a comment on what you've heard today, you have a question or you're looking for a church, then please get in contact with us. Our website is eaglehawkpc.org.au. You can also contact us through Facebook or Instagram. God bless you.